Right, good listeners, here we go. It's episode 29 of the podcast, and we're going to be doing a talking about President George Herbert Walker Bush, not George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush. HW, we were going to go straight into Bill Clinton, but we thought, nah, let's do HW. Oh, James has arrived. Hello. Hello, Dad. Hello. Right, let us begin. You got right. We're just going to do one each, one each, James. Okay. Uh, you can do the early years. I'll do the military service. You do post-war life. I'll do uh, early political life. You can do UN ambassador, uh, RNC, CIA, all that stuff. I'll do 80. You do VP. <laughs> I'll do running in 88. You do domestic policies. I'll do the foreign policies and we'll do legacy. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah, I'm turning my camera off so my computer doesn't start fucking overheating. Ah. Uh, the, the last thing we wanted. Well, last on Monday, my battery stopped working, for God's sake. It stopped, stopped fully working. Yeah. You've been using it too much, though. Well, yeah, I do. But that's why I've, I've had to turn it off now before I go to sleep and stuff. James, let us begin. Let's. Hmm? Sorry. Are we beginning? I thought you were doing earlier. Yes. No, you're doing it. I'm doing it. Oh, okay, okay. This this is a yeah, this, is a, <laughs> this is a mass communication break that we've had. Okay. You're doing early years. I'm doing military service. Then you're doing early political life. Let me just do okay, one. Okay. 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 So George Bro, uh, George Bush, sorry, uh, grew up in Greenwich, uh, which and was born in Milton, uh, Massachusetts, on uh, June twelfth, nineteen twenty-four. That's not the Greenwich in London. Make sure oh. it's a Greenwich in Massachusetts. That's right. Why not? As we know for the Americans, good. Massachusetts got a lot of English cities, anyways. Massachusetts. Yeah, As we know, one thing from the Americans, they like renaming our cities. Um, mm. His father Prescott. That's not. That's not John Prescott. Was a member of uh, Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, which is one of the most prestigious banks on Wall Street. Um, Abel Haram Haram Haraman Harriman, mate. Yeah, Harriman was an aide to FDR in World War II, and Robert Lovett was the Assistant Secretary of War. All three became the wise men in helping President Truman post World War II. So, what the three wise men? Yeah, all three were Republicans. May we also add the tradition of bipartisanship and the censor was always welcomed by President uh, by uh, Prescott Bush. Sorry, not President Bush. And by uh, President Bush. And by President Bush. Well, it depends which one. <laughs> Yes, which one do you want to talk about? And HW's model was uh, Prescott Bush, and uh, and basically watched his dad moderate meetings in Greenwich Village. It was something he he looked up to him, didn't he? Really? Yeah, yeah he really did. And uh, he also looked up to his mother. Um, no, notable story that he was playing elementary uh, football for scoring a hat trick, and his mum said, "That's nice, but how did the team do?" Which yeah. Never blow your own trumpet, sort of thing. Keep your feet to the ground. Yeah, she's very supportive, mother. Yeah, but how did the team do? Well, it's, it's humility. Yeah, true. 
But uh, one reason why Bush was so good as president was the fact he was humble. He was never above himself. Well, when uh, Bush, when uh, when the child stayed, right? How you say that now? Any Bunkerports? It's a it's a town in Maine. It's a godforsaken town in Maine that the Bushes still have a massive home in. Oh, okay. So it's a uh, so it's their hometown, I guess. Not yeah. the hometown, but there. Right. Yeah. A summer home. It's a summer home. Yeah. So. Um, Bush spirits of competition came with sports, notably being um, capital on the baseball team at Andover. I say captain, shit. That's right. Did I, did I not say captain? No, I spelled capital like a knobhead. Oh, okay. But anyway, he was he was captain. At, he, he was it was a big sportsman, wasn't he? He was very big on sports. He was yeah, a captain at Andover, captain at Yale, yeah. and he said, you know, it was that glint of what is the glint of Walker's steel. It's a glint of Walker's steel. And he was captain at a rounders, oh sorry, baseball, same thing. Um was the and he was quite the quite glint different. of what? It's quite different. Uh, they're basically the same thing, yeah. They don't. Nah. Oh well, fine. Anyway, his military service, of course, Bush was commissioned to join the Navy at 19, which is of course the youngest uh, Navy man in history in American history at the time. On his 50th mission, he famously was flying a plane over in Manchuria. Uh, and of course, his plane was shot down, and Bush uh, basically was swim uh, got basically shot down and was swimming in the sea. And by a miracle, there was some staff on a submarine that saved him. Bush had in effect become a war hero. Uh, there were the cruisers on the fin back in effect. And Bush, who was always running to his two co-pilots, one who did went down with the plane, and the other one who didn't whose air parachute didn't actually, you know work so he died as well and of course he went on eight more missions we did 58 in total uh henry l simpson was a man bush to look up to was in on june 12 1940 said today we face the greatest difference between right and wrong simpson of course who was a republican was made secretary of war by franklin roosevelt and bush enlisted in the u.s navy on june 12 1942 on the board of the finback he wrote i hope my own children will never have to fight a war uh, friends, apparent life extinguished. It just isn't right. And then, of course, Bush famously flew 58 combat missions and nearly 1,200 hours of flying time. Too long. Mm. Very long time he was in the, in the sky for, wasn't it? How many days? Three and a half that? years. Yeah, it was three and a half years he did in the, in the Navy. Yeah, so, I mean, commitment, wasn't it? I mean, oh, he, yeah. he did run his campaign a bit, didn't he, on the, in being a war? Well, yeah, famously, in 1988, he, there was yeah. an action from Bush to be a war hero, and then Michael Dukakis showed himself running, rolling, uh, driving a tank. Yes. Oh, dear. Well, um, post-war life, so after after Bush came back, um, came back from the war, he went to Yale and got a degree and became a member of Skull and Bones. Sounds yeah. like a pirate club. It's <laughs> a, an elitist society in Yale that's full of basically a bunch of sadists. Oh, wait, like the Bullingdon Society. Yeah, it's exactly like the Bullingdon Club, yeah. Mm. Uh, so Bush did not follow Prescott or Simpson into finance, but instead decided to go something that is material. Um, Bush decided to go to West Texas and start an oil uh, at the start of the oil boom, um, earning about $375 a month for 4000 Four hundred seventy-six dollars a month in twenty twenty terms. Um, Bush developed his own oil rig with Zapata Offshore. Yeah. Zapata Offshore, as a business, and they moved to Houston. Um, 
And basically, and then after Bush had his second child, um, who was diagnosed with leukemia at three years old, the doctor said, let her die at home. Instead, they took her to New York with George and Barbara Bush bringing friends over. So, I mean, I mean, I mean, it must be horrible to watch it. I mean, and later on, Robin, the child, um, died at three years and 10 months old. And um, George H.W. Bush comfort, comforted his wife, Barbara, and in effect, it became Bush. Made much more dramatic. Yeah. And famously, when Bush became president, he had a photo of Robin on his desk and has just, well, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, death changes people, doesn't it? Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. And in the late 1950s, after the birth of Jeb, Neil and Marvin Bush, Bush decided he needed to go. Yeah. So I don't know how he managed it. Looking at that, when Dorothy Bush was born, Bush went to the glasses and sobbed. I went to the glass and sobbed, and he just obviously he was written, oh, obviously. Well, now James, good listeners, James has now figured out what the word sobbed means. I think that and he cried. Yeah, I mean, with the successes of offshore, I mean, Bush famously had the funds he needed to go and do a political career. And obviously, in his early life, Prescott Bush, of course, was an Eastern Republican, which is covered for very sane centrist, uh, and always believed in the community in work of a balanced budgets and also social liberalism. He was basically a bipartisan centrist. You know, H.W. entered politics. And the issue of the issue is this: Texas Republicans don't didn't really exist back then. When James Baker, the, the great James Baker, uh, his wife had held the first precinct convention for the GOP in texas in 1966 there was one person who turned up one one guy a singular person who turned up to the other guys what's and said hello hello i'm the republican in texas that's how look republicans didn't exist in texas you were democrats or you were a democrat a few republicans of course in houston were in effect just a bunch of country club centrists same people and it changed of course when president kennedy did civil rights and all the john birches came in and the birches were a bunch of nuppet muppets they believed that president eisenhower was a communist they believed that george marshall was a communist they believed harry truman was a communist they Wait, so if, if, if anybody had any left whatsoever hmm? <laughs> if anybody's a bit to the left of them they were communists yes <laughs> they basically believe that the New Deal was an act of communism, the martial aid was an act of communism, the social security was an act of communism, and then they said, what isn't communism? They said, anything we like. And what is that, they say? <laughs> Not communism. <laughs> <laughs> They've been horrified. So stupid. When did they went to Britain? Oh, yeah. The NHS, communism. Education, communism. <laughs> this is all communism. Well, what would you like? The 1800s back. What, with poor people in the streets? Yes. Why? That's a freer society. Oh, fuck you. But, yeah, they believe that the man who was the general during World War II, the man who had led America's recovery in Europe after World War II, and the man who did Hiroshima in World War II were all bloody communists. Absolute nonsense. Mm. In, of course, 1962, H.W. was asked to run for the chairman of the Harris County Republican Party to keep all the birches out. And after he won the race, Bush tried to bring in these stupid people uh, to unite the party. And the, the Republican, who's country club Republican, said, George, you do not know these people. They want to destroy you and destroy us. And when Jeff K. brought in civil, well, tried to do civil rights, but he couldn't because he was such an incompetent president, 
there were loads and 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 loads of Southern Democrats who left the Democrats for the GOP. And famously, Hubert Humphrey called up, uh, I think it was Goldwater, and said, thank you for getting rid of all those fuckers. <laughs> it makes our life easier. And of course, there was, a, there was you know, a huge turnover. That's how you know Barry Goldwater won the South in '64, contrary to every expectation. Um, famously, when uh, Bush was going to run, he ran on basically conservatism. He ran on he, he accommodated the people in '62, '63. They backed Goldwater in '64, backed Reagan in '68, '76, '80, and '84, and of course backed him in '88. And the party. He had created in Harris County became the GOP in 1988 that he did not like. Goldwater, of course, was led the establishment against the New Deal, uh, labor unions. He basically he was just a right wing fuckwit. You know, he was against the New Deal. He was against the unions. He was against paying money to the old people. He was against any form of centrism. I mean, famously, he said, what "Was it that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice?" <laughs> James E. Cameron's frozen. And he also said, we do not try and win over people to our cause because they'll never agree with us anyway. What? Yeah. That's the whole point of politics. Yeah. He said, we, those <laughs> people will never agree with our cause, so we do not wish to win them over. <laughs> Lunatic. Um, right. Of course, uh, Bush had decided to run for the Senate in uh, Texas as a conservative and tried to ensure President Bush, Prescott Bush, didn't say anything. Because, of course, Prescott, Prescott Bush has the same view on conservative Republicans as I do. Mm -hmm. uh, Bush ran as a conservative Republican against the unions and for prayer in the schools and, uh, for, and on Goldwater's 64 platform. Basically, right-wing nonsense after right-wing nonsense after right-wing nonsense after right-wing nonsense. Um, yeah. Of course, in 63, uh, John, John Kennedy went to come and visit Houston on November 21st, 1963. The day before, uh, Goldwater was ahead of Kennedy in a poll in Texas, which showed how unpopular JFK was. Yeah. Uh, however, of course, once Kennedy was shot and killed by the CIA, then the political landscape uh, changed in radically in America because, of course, LBJ was made a VP at uh, the president. And, of course, Southern Democrats were not going to vote down the first Southern president in nearly 100 years. No. And Bush ran to the right of, uh, of Goldwater on many issues and was opposed to civil rights. And lost in 1964 for the Senate, 56-43, with yet Ralph Yarbrough, one of the most liberal Democrats in the South in history, trounced him. And Bush, of course, was deeply depressed by his position on civil rights. He, he didn't believe anyone should grow up hating people. So in 1966, Bush ran for the more moderate Texas 7 district, much more moderate. He was able to be more like Prescott Bush and won easily, 57-42. And in 1968, when the Fair Housing Bill came, which basically wanted to desegregate all public housing, George Bush voted with Lyndon John with the Democrats to ensure that there was no racial discrimination in housing, it's open housing. And Bush got death threats. His staff member got abused on the phone, and Bush famously saw one of his staff members very upset because she was being sworn at repeatedly and called every disgusting name under the sun. And Bush said, This is George Bush. Don't you, I don't know who this is. Don't you ever call here again and treat anyone like that again. And panged up on him 
I love that. And he recalls he was threatened with a woman who supported Bush very loyally, said she felt she'd been violated and he would never be welcome to home again. Yes, God forbid they allow black people to live in a to live next door to them. I can't see how the world can continue. <laughs> he, honestly, the hysteria and anger was utterly dis, 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 just mentally disturbed nonsense. Mm. Uh, Bush then decided, of course, to do something extremely bold, called a meeting of the Texas GOP rank and file on April 7, 1968, and gave a speech where he brilliantly said, your representative owes you not just an industry, but his judgment, and he betrays you, not serves you, if he abandons his judgment. I voted out my judgment because it's the right thing to do. Spot on. Yeah. And after visiting the troops, because of course it changed my mind when he visited the troops in Vietnam and he was outraged by the African Americans were the first on the front line giving their lives, but yet they were treated with such disdain and contempt when they came home. And Bush said, you know, it seems fundamental that a man should, yeah. not, have, should not have a door slammed in his face because he's a because he's as as he said because he's a Negro or speaks with a Latin American accent. Mm-hmm. And of course, it transformed the audience from being hostile to being totally supporting. With famously a woman saying, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I'm voting for you now. In 1988, of course, Bush wrote that there was nothing uh, before or since that was like the, the elation he felt that night. And of course, once Bush became an elected official, he was uh, a centrist. He, got, he governed in the bipartisan center. He worked with LBJ and he, they worked yeah. with Nixon. And in 1970, President Nixon asked Bush to run again for the Senate again in Texas against Ralph Yarbrough. And Bush's seat when the House was secure, he was on the po- very powerful Ways and Means Committee. And when he talked to LBJ about it, because him and LBJ were friends, would you like to know what Lyndon Johnson said about the difference between the House and the Senate was? What? He said, son, I've served in the, both how, the House and the Senate, and the difference between chicken salad and chicken shit. <laughs> Bush, it's safe to say, chose the chicken salad and ran for ah, the Senate. As you would, as you would. <laughs> Oh, he's so crude, and I love him for it. Anyways, he made James Baker, the great James Baker, who was his tennis partner, uh, whose wife had died. And he said, you know, Baker, you got to get let off your grief. And you got to, why don't you come and help me on the campaign? And Baker famously said, well, that's great, George, but I, I, I've got two problems. One, I don't know anything about politics. And the second, I'm a Democrat. And uh, Bush said, well, we can change the latter problem. And he changed to a Republican. And Baker actually ran a pretty amazing campaign for the nomination, the GOP. Yeah. And um, Bush ran much more as a moderate, much more as a centrist, talked about unifying and all, and talked about preserving the social programs and helping the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when Lloyd Benson was picked instead of Ralph Yarbrough, Benson, who was a Democrat, and to the right of George Bush, Though it's fair to say Benson became much more mellowed when he was in the Senate and became much more rational and sane. Nixon endorsed Bush and the White House disliked Bush because though he was a loyal man and a good man, they said he was a gentleman and too polite. Obviously, they're like a vicious, heartless bastard. That yeah, no I'll, I'll, I'll honest, you, don't, you don't want a nice person to be president. No, he was a nasty <laughs> bastard. Obviously, nice people are better. But a lot of Yarbrough's Liberal Democrat supporters, who are left-wing Democrats, genuinely wanted to vote for Bush because Benson was so far to the right. But because Nixon endorsed him and Nixon was such a hated figure amongst Democrats, we said, no, he can't do it. Uh, but he only lost by seven points, 53-46. Wait, so, so so people voted Democrat because Nick, they would have voted Republican, but because Nixon said vote Republican, they voted Democrat. Correct. <laughs> That is the definition of beating yourself in the foot. 
Yeah, that's how polarizing Nixon was. That there were Liberal Democrats, nearly one in three, who were considering voting for Bush because Bush was to the left of of Lloyd Benson. But because Nixon endorsed him and because Nixon was just universally hated by every Liberal Democrat, they said, no, we can't endorse him. We can't vote for him. Mm. It's safe to say the Nixon endorsement might actually have costed Bush the seat. Yeah. Well, you also, yeah, and after all of that, after two unsuccessful seven bits, um, he decided, well, Nixon, I guess as an apology now, <laughs> Uh, get granted an uh, ambassador to the United Nations. So um, nothing. George dropped. Bush became UN, uh, UN ambassador. I mean, this is where him and Lyndon Johnson have a very big similarity. Ambassador to the UN was a nothing job. And when Lyndon mm. Johnson became a whip, a congressional whip, that was also a nothing job. And mm. they made it into a very powerful job. Apparently. Yes. Lowest were, were very good at making nothing jobs into something jobs. Yeah. Big jobs. I mean, so much so when Bush was asked to leave the UN and join the RNC, everyone said, that's a step down. And Bush had said, hold on a second, when I was a congressman, you said becoming the United Nations was a step down. <laughs> but, I mean, as, a, as ambassador, I mean, he didn't have much, he didn't have much, you know, uh, knowledge over foreign policy. He didn't know much about it. But he did know a lot about dealing with people through his experiences in the past. And... Um, and he would do that. Uh, he developed friends with uh, with leaders, and deputies, and foreign ministers and ambassadors, and he developed friends with Chinese communists as well. So obviously, so obviously he was a communist as well. Um, but um, he started. And Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping liked him. Yeah, and I mean, China. He developed relations with China. Developed relations with Pakistan. Developed relations with a lot of European nations. And it was very interesting because Bush would just literally, all he would do was this. He'd walk around the halls, knocking on each country's door, asking each ambassador how they were, how their country was, what's their view of the United States, what are their foreign policy problems as they saw it, and then wrote a thank you note after meeting them. Yeah. I mean, legendary that. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, that's why he made the ambassador to the UN actually worth something, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, USA arguably if not the most powerful person in the UN at that time. And obviously, if being ambassador to the UN meant nothing, I mean, imagine being the ambassador to the UN for Guatemala or whatever. Uh, so it, he made he made ambassadors actually w- worth something, if you see what I mean. He made made ambassadors actually a job which which is actually Jim something Baker that's the, the UN. Him and Jim Baker were both amazing. Good, yeah. Was- and to an extent, Colin, yeah, okay, Colin Powell was until Bush ruined him, Bush 43, not Bush 41. But it's funny, isn't it? Until Trump, and it's until Trump, until the Bush, George W. Bush, Republicans were always better at foreign affairs than Democrats were. Always. Yeah. Yeah. And then, okay, in the latter half of the Bush presidency, when he did the Iraq troop surge, which was an amazing idea, I suppose he was redeeming himself. And Trump was just fucking shit at foreign affairs. He knew nothing about it whatsoever. In many ways, Trump was the opposite of the, of the traditional Republican because he was I mean, not domestic affairs and ignorant on foreign affairs when that, Republicans tend to be ignorant on domestic affairs and brilliant on foreign policy. I mean, if we, if we, look, if we don't listen about the stuff that Trump knew nothing about, that it would be an endless list. <laughs> we'd, be here for, we'd be here for a year if we listed it all. We could list it all one every 10 seconds and we'd still be here for a year. Yeah. Um, Ick bastard. 
I mean, two years ago, after ambassadors to the UN, Nixon went bold and decided to make Bush, uh, Bush head of the Republican National Committee oh, five yeah. months before Watergate. So, I mean... After, uh, after Watergate happened. Five months after, sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry, that's my bad. I was meant to put a comment saying five months before Watergate had happened. Sorry. After Watergate had happened. Which means, I'm looking for it, that means Nixon was stabbing him in the back. Oh, <laughs> and, Nixon was doing him a huge favour. Well, I mean, becoming head of the Republican National Committee five months after Watergate. Spending two years on the national televisions rallying around the troops and rallying the president. Uh, all the grassroots Republicans watching George Bush on the television every day saying, we need to get behind the president, we need to get behind the party, we need to unite. How does that play yeah. with roots? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not saying it's not bad for the for the Republicans. I'm saying it's bad for George Bush. Imagine all the bad publicity he got. One of the reasons he got considered for VP in 1980 is because grassroots liked him so much. Mm, true, true. But I mean, he didn't win in 1980, did he? Made Ronald fucking fucking brain dead more one of an actor president twice. <laughs> um. Anyway, um, he wanted to build. Uh, as you say, he wanted to build in the GOP. He wanted to build the GOP. In a constructive, as he said, in a constructive, positive image with a room for diversity and growth. I mean, less than uh, less than one month after Bush took the job, the Senate decided to hold hearings into the Watergate breaking. Uh, Bush travelled to 33 states and made 188 appearances defending Nixon and the GOP. Uh, he defended the president in television, in rallies and in fundraisers. Pretty much anywhere he could defend the president, he would defend the president. Um, Nixon lied to uh, to H.W. Bush, and he was stunned. He, it was it, it was gentleman's rules. I mean, he did violate the oldest rule in the book. You don't lie to people. You, you, I mean, you, you don't you don't lie. Right? You might lie to people who aren't in your circle, but you don't lie to the person in your circle. That it's the entire purpose, isn't it? Right. I mean. There's nothing wrong with lying to your enemies. They're your enemies. They deserve every nasty thing they get. But don't ever lie to your friends. Yeah. And, I mean, he said, I think, I think he diary. said... Uh, he wrote it in his diary, this. He wrote, in this, he wrote this in his diary, and he said, uh, this era of twardy and shabby and lack of morality has come to an end. That, surprisingly, sounds a lot like Boris Johnson's uh, <laughs> uh, uh, as being Prime Minister. His township yeah. is... <laughs> Boris Johnson. You could describe Boris Johnson in that way. Yes, he's very dangerous and shabby, and he has a lack. And he and the fact he how many children he's got means he has a lack of morality. Mm. And <laughs> I would made I would consider James cheating on your wife while she's having chemotherapy as a form of immorality. I would definitely class that as a form of immorality as well. Yeah, that's answer questions. Boris Johnson immoral. Yes, he is. Now moving on. Well, and lying to the house. And what made him most... And lying to the Queen. And lying to the country. And killing like 200,000 of his own citizens during COVID and gaslighting him. And partying during lockdown. And £200,000 doing up his flat. And getting own And ripping up... And the PPE contracts. And test and trace. And the lockdowns. And zonal areas. And the tier system. And the messing up of the schools and the low pay rise for the National Health Service and for teaching staff, and the desecration of the unions, and the desecration of our world reputation, and uh, the lies, and Brexit, and the queues at Dover, and his partying, and 
I mentioned his partying whilst we were all in lockdown in utter misery. Uh, what else is it? Oh, yes, and trying to rip up the ministerial code and defending bullies and trying to help parliamentary standards and lying to the House and lying in the Telegraph and mocking British prisoners of war and mocking the Hillsborough disaster. And, we and don't... cheating on all his partners <laughs> and desecrating all his children. And uh, making a mockery out of his leaders. I mean, okay, I've gone on long enough. I think I've, I think the listeners get the point. Yes, um, after, after that brief interlude. Um, <laughs> I mean, what what made President Bush most upset was the fact that he lied on the on Nixon's behalf. Um, that that's what made him most upset and angry, because he not only did he break the gentleman's rule, he broke it unknowingly. Which was the most, which is the biggest insult to him. And on October, on August the sixth, nineteen seventy-four, Nixon wanted to talk about the economy, and Ford interrupted and said, "We have to talk about the future of the presidency." And in August seventh, nineteen seventy-four, Bush told Nixon to resign. Yeah. So I this mean, this was only after the Senate was going to. This was only after the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to impeach him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They were like, "You're not surviving this. You're not surviving this." And. Um, Gerald Ford, who succeeded Nixon, um, Bush, uh, who had who was the choice of all party leaders, meanwhile, at Kenningbunkport, uh, Kenningbunkport, yeah, Kenningbunkport, yeah, Bush is uh, fixing, <laughs> Bush is fixing the toilets there, and um, so, so he's really not interested, he doesn't seem that interested, does he, in to be vice president or president? Well, maybe he's just distracting himself, yeah, maybe true. And Ford had decided to pick Grover Nelson, uh, Governor, not Grover, Governor Nelson Rockefeller for uh, for the uh, most liberal governor of the USA as vi- as VP instead. Yeah. Um. Once most liberal, not not Lee most. Okay. Yeah, he was once once the- most liberal. I don't think he was liberal yeah. instead in his fourth term, but he was for his first three terms. Governor Ro- Nelson Rockefeller was probably the most liberal governor in the United States, and a Republican may I also add. Yeah, well, de- definitely, definitely the most republic, uh, liberal Republican, you would say. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah. was he? More governor, liberal. Oh, governor, liberal. yes. Governor, yes. Was he more liberal of all time? Yeah. No, no, no. no, I suppose he was. I mean, Jeffords was fairly left-wing. Uh, Lincoln yeah. Shaffy was fairly liberal. Um, Charles Goodell, Jack Javits. No, I'd say I'd say yeah. Rockefeller was probably the most liberal of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, Bush initially, uh, Bush initially crestfallen and wrote in his diary, "I was lucky to be in the game at all." Yeah. Well, he, uh, he was a two-term congressman, James Ambassador yeah. United States. The fact that it's going to be the vice presidential VP nominee was a huge step up for him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, after after being called a congressman was a nobody job, and being called ambassador was a nobody's job. To jump up the to RNC the second was most powerful job, yeah. Arguably the second most powerful man in the world. Job. I mean, I mean, it just show it just show. I mean, he was very lucky to be considered at all. But it's it's not like he didn't earn it. He did earn it. Oh yeah. No. Um, Ford Ford offered Bush an ambassadorship and was made ambassador to China. Um, one year later, whilst Bush was cycling in Beijing, Dr. Henry Kissinger was appointed director of Central Intelligence Agency. So director oh, of CIA. God's sake, I worded yeah, that wrong. Dr. Henry Kissinger told him. 
was going to that that Bush was going to be appointed. Henry Kissinger was the national security advisor. Anyway. Yeah, so so Dr. Henry Kissinger, who was the national security advisor, told Bush that he was going to be the head of the CIA. And um, was a genius, Dr. Kissinger. Absolute yeah. genius. He was the architect of Nixon uh, going to China. Yes. Yeah, and he was Nixon's loyalist of lot. He was Nixon's loyalist advisor. I mean, famously, when Ford became president, what's the first thing he said it, before he was sworn in? I would like you all to know, Dr. Henry. I've asked Dr. Henry Kissinger to stay on as my Secretary of State, and he's agreed. <laughs> <laughs> not, not it's a pleasure to do this job. Not let's get the country. No, no, it's all right, people. Henry Kissinger's staying on. I mean, am I that Joe Ford? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, for so after well, after he's, he took, he's America's biggest policy, foreign policy thinker. Every president from Nixon to Obama's always consulted Henry Kissinger. I mean, you would, wouldn't it? Experience speaks for itself. Yeah, China. He ended the Vietnam War with Nixon. He opened Cambodia up to Nixon. He brought mm. in the Asian markets, which allowed Asians to become prominent countries. He uh, ended, he established the peace accords. He, you know, worked with Carter and Camp David. He worked with Ford on getting all the POWs home. He, he basically was the architect of ending the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, but Bush, Bush, when he, when, he was, when he went back to the USA and um, was directing CIA, uh, Bush took the CIA from being scandal-ridden to a formidable institution. Right. Essential to the defense of the nation. I mean, I mean, like, it's, 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 I mean, it's weird to think now, but back then the CIA was a bit of a joke, wasn't it? I mean, it you complete joke. I mean, comparing CIA to MI6 was just, was it's just laughable. It's yeah, absolutely laughable. FBI now, was always formidable, but the yes. CIA was a joke in 1975. And I think there are some CIA staff who would agree with me that it was a joke in 1975. But no, Bush made it exceedingly brilliant. And I'd argue that. The reforms in the 80s, the CIA became, in my view, one of the greatest institutions in defense, along with the FBI, because of Bush increasing morale and then Reagan putting the money in and then Bush putting the money in. Yeah. They transformed um, a very good institution, in my view. Uh, Bush found CIA, uh, CIA staffers uh, uh, demoralizing, vulnerable, and Bush became the champion of the CIA. Right. Uh, of the CIA staff, sorry, and, re- and reassuring Congress, making 51, um, 51 appearances to Capitol Hill to defend it. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, it was it was very, I mean, to be, if there's one thing to learn from George Bush, uh, from George H.W. Bush, is that no matter what job he's placed into, he gave his 100% to every single job, no matter how, no, no matter to how small he thought the job was, or how little it would actually meant, like, the USA ambassador to the UN that meant nothing at the time he did it, but 100% effort into it, and it's it became success. the same with the CIA. Yeah, with success, it each was success. time with success. You know, in the in the uh, UN, he develops his foreign friends, most of whom became prime ministers and presidents. The RNC develops domestic friends who helped him out with his 1888 campaign, and at the CIA, he tripled their funding in one year. Yeah. I've seen um, and, nearly a decade. Yeah, and six months later, he wrote in his diary, morale at the CIA is improving, recruitment is up, and people are willing to serve abroad, which is which is the main reason they well, have the CIA. No, no, they, they didn't know foreign missions since 1970. Exactly. 
They had no, they had no foreign missionaries. He made a radical uh, reform of the CIA. He did a much, very good job, Bush did. Yeah. Uh, President Carter, though, kicked him out in 76. Uh, after, um, and he was and he got kicked out of being director of the CIA stupidly. when President Carter stupidly. became president. Yeah, stupidly. Yeah, obviously. Not that we don't love Jimmy Carter. We do. But that was kind of a stupid decision. Yeah. I mean, after what you saw Bush do, it's kind of... Yeah. You've tripled the funding, you've tripled recruitment, you've got us on foreign missions, you've installed our integrity, you're fired. Get out of it. <laughs> and Bush is gone, we fire people for failing in their jobs. They're the best director in history. I don't care, you're a Republican. Out. Bush, just shows like when Bush became president in 88 and he went in transition. What did they all the staff do? Get rid of all the Reagan people. Out, out. <laughs> Are you a conservative? Yes, I am. Out! You're fired! <laughs> I think that may have been some guilt and anger he'd had from the Carter years. Anyway, so of course, Bush ran in, in 1980 on May 1st, sometime around president, and he talked, talked he, he enforced Eisenhower and Prescott Bush. He said, There is in our affairs at home a middle way between the freedom of the individual and the demands of the welfare of the whole nation. Bush ran made 329 visits in one year and defeated Reagan in Iowa. However, in the New Hampshire primary, Reagan challenged Bush to a one-on-one debate. Reagan then being a sneaky bastard, then changed the rules to accommodate all the candidates in. After the moderator and Bush didn't want to, because of course, gentleman's rules, they tried to switch off Reagan's microphone, and Reagan goes, I am paying for this microphone, Mr. Green, because Reagan had paid for the whole fucking debate. Bush lost New Hampshire and continued to challenge Reagan over supplies and economics, where he famously said, what I call a voodoo economics. Well, he, he, he was right. It was a voodoo economics. Uh, the idea that you could cut taxes massively, spend more without any form of reform. And of course, the, the day before the California primary, Bush left the race. James Baker declared the campaign bankrupt. It wasn't bankrupt, but Bush, but Baker knew that if Bush didn't fight California, he'd be made the vice president. And on the day, the first day of the convention, Reagan was in a private meeting with Stu Spencer, Lynn Neuschke, uh, uh, Ed Meese, and was and Michael Deaver, and spent 15 minutes just insulting George Bush, saying why he was an incompetent, why he was an idiot over voodoo economics. And, and he said to uh, Stu Spencer, so who should I make VP, Stu? And he goes, George Bush. And he goes, were you not listening to what I was saying? And he goes, no, I was, but you're a pragmatic guy. And so, <clears throat> fucking hell. Need <clears throat> <clears throat> uh, a mint. Is it okay? Yeah. I don't know what the fuck that was about. Reagan was considered to make Reagan was going to make Joe Ford the VP, but after as we talked about uh, the Carter episode that. Ford wanted, you know, Alan, in the regular time, Ford wanted, you know, Alan Greenspan and Dick Cheney and Henry Kissinger in the cabinet. They didn't want a co-presidency. So as James Baker was leaving, Stu Spencer saw him and said, don't leave. He said, why not? Because then Reagan called Bush and he was asked to be the vice president on one condition. George H.W. was asked to change his mind on abortion because H.W. was pro-choice. H.W. had always been pro-choice. H.W. Had, can, can, had supported Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Not only had he supported it, he praised it. 
HW had started up Planned Parenthood. HW had voted for universal access to birth control, which 195 Republicans in the House two days ago wanted to outlaw. Just, just thought I'd put that on the record so everybody knew that 195 of 250 Republicans do not believe in birth control, and that 158 Republicans do not believe in the right to interracial marriage or same-sex marriage. Just, just thought I'd put that on the record in case Michael Cellino would like to sit and tell us all why Trump and the Republicans are amazing people and we should all bow down and suck them off. <laughs> oh my God, he's meant to be in this episode. Shit. <laughs> ah, well. Let's keep going. Um, so yeah, Bush became pro-life because of course Reagan was always bloody pro-life. Uh, yeah. Well, no, it's not pro-life, it's pro-fucking control, for God's sake. I mean, I'm pro-life, but I'm not bigoted, <laughs> like these clowns are. And in many ways, of course, Bush was what Reagan protected to be. Uh, yes. Oh, fuck off. Pretended to be. Not protected to be. <laughs> protected to be. Bush, of course, was a war hero. I mean, sorry, to come back to the abortion question for just two seconds. Reagan appointed Anthony Kennedy to the court. He appointed Sandra Day O'Connor to the court, two pro-choice liberal justices. Bush appoints David Souter, the most liberal justice for the Republicans since Earl Warren, and Clarence Thomas, a man who has actually no intelligence. (laughs) He has no intelligence whatsoever. And anyone who says, Dowd, you're an originalist. Surely you like Clarence Thomas. Nope. An originalist is somebody who looks at the Constitution in a strict manner, but can also understand precedents and understands that if states have done something before, and if there's a clear precedent, then you abide by precedent. Roe versus Wade was a precedent. So you must abide by precedent. You cannot, as Anthony Scalia says, you don't reinvent the wheel. Clarence Thomas does not understand precedent because Clarence Thomas cannot spell precedent. Thick bastard. <laughs> Honest to God. Roe comes out. Oh, what do you think about it? Well, I'm pro-choice, but I had to, but I, I mean, oh. you can be sensible about these things without being bigoted. The trouble is the modern Republican Party are just full of fucking bigots. Like Michael Tolino. Right now we, we really are digressing. <laughs> Shall we move on to the things of being? No, no, no. I just I wanted to clear up the fact that I was not pro-life, that I was pro-choice with sensible limits. But in case my name was slandered and then I had to sue the poor fucker for libel. <laughs> so, uh, in many ways, of course, Bush was what Reagan pretended to be. Bush was a war hero. Reagan had played the war hero. Bush was the captain of his baseball team. Reagan had played an athlete, and both preached family values. Uh, Reagan couldn't show a happy family, Bush could. Now, Reagan, of course, turned to Bush as a way of uniting the conservatives and the centrists, and, but Reagan disliked him, though Reagan, of course, became very good friends with Bush uh, throughout the presidency, famously because of the assassination attempt and developed a personal friendship, and Nancy Reagan detested him bitterly, but as Bush said, we all detest her too. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the vice presidency, James. Well, Bush, when the vice president, uh, when the VP said that he didn't want to see any anyone ever briefing against Reagan, um, 
and oh when 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 he was VP, he said that he didn't want anyone ever briefing against Reagan. Um, when he was VP, he also his connections and friends with uh, um, yeah, Deng Xiaoping helps helps these yeah. heads of arms out. I mean that that was back to when he was the UN ambassador as well, when he made friends with. Him. Um, Bush was supported of of free of free Poland, and when three Soviet leaders funerals occurred over four years, Bush went to the funerals and spoke to them. Not he spoke, not, to report to Reagan directly. Yeah, anything foreign policy because Reagan was ignorant about foreign policy. Anything foreign policy related, Bush was the first guy he always turned to, which is amazing. Right, I mean Reagan and Bush had a weekly lunch, and after Reagan had an attempt in his life, they developed a personal friendship. You know why? Why? Because when Reagan went under anesthesia for twelve hours, the they did not invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment. They decided not. Bush decided he didn't want to become the president. They let they kept Ronald Reagan as the president. So therefore, Bush Reagan he was loyal. And during the weekly lunches, there was no staff in the room. It was just Reagan and Bush, and that's very good. Staffs don't get anything done. Okay, staffs just cause problems. And number three, they do. Well, it's I mean, like- yeah. I mean, it's like Alan get... Simpson and Robert Reich, right? Simpson was meet, uh, the, a moderate conservative Republican from Wyoming. And he said, I want to go meet Rob Reich. This was when Robert Reich was the Secretary of Labour uh, and was a very, very left-wing Democrat. And he said, Reich, you want to meet him? He's a bloody egghead communist liberal. He's not even a Democrat. He's a communist, practically. And Simpson goes, I'm meeting him. What are you going to do? And... Um, Reich had told this staff he wants to meet Simpson, and they said, Simpson, he's a right-wing neocon coming from a right-to-work state. You can't meet with him. I mean, stuff, all staff do is just cause problems. That's all they do. They do. In my view, you want to, Congress should only, each congressman should only allow three members of staff. One to run the press, one to advise them on policy, and one to help them with the votes. That's it. Nothing else. Are you doing your rant out? Actually, no, forget the one with the the votes. They can have one secretary. That's it. Three members of staff. That's all you need. You don't need... They, they have 10, 15 members of staff. Nope, they just cause problems. Why? I mean, why do... I mean, famously, when Simpson, Alan Simpson was working with uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the great Democrat from New York, and they, the staff told Simpson, don't go for this amendment. Moynihan will gut the bill. And Alan Simpson went to Danny Moynihan and said, but what do you not like this amendment? It was something about trade tariffs. Do you not like the amendment? And my hand goes, No, I like that amendment. What's the problem? He goes, Well, my staff say you don't like the amendment. And my hand goes, Listen, I have a staff of one person. It's me. <laughs> I read the bills, I go into my room, I get drunk, and I give a speech. That's it. And then <laughs> Simpson goes, Has it worked? And he goes, well, I've been re-elected five times for the Senate, so I presume it has worked, yes. <laughs> I mean, my hand, what, 30 years? I've never heard of a more American politician who goes there, gets drunk and makes a speech. And you know what, James? He was still one of the most respected senators for nearly 20 years. Because <laughs> he, was on, he, was, he was liberal on things like welfare, on things like the healthcare, on things, not welfare, taxes and education, and he was conservative on defence, uh, welfare, and law and order. So therefore, everyone had a reason to like him. And it was a jokingly said that when Danny Moynihan gave a speech drunk, it was often a very good speech. 
<laughs> he was the only one who could get away with it. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, it, I don't, I don't know if it's an insult or not to be classed as, as a speech. You can give a speech better drunk than you can sober. I mean, that's the thing. Imagine Senator now going on the vlog giving a speech whilst he's drunk. The media would go, oh my goodness, this senator's clearly an incompetent. He's an idiot. He's drunk. Moynihan, for nearly 36 years, was giving speeches when he was pissed on the floor. And they said, oh, it's Daniel Patrick Moynihan. What can you do? He still passes a lot of bills and people still like him. He was a good man. He worked for Nixon, he worked for LBJ, he worked for Hubert Humphrey, he worked for Ronald Reagan, he worked for Republicans and Democrats. But yeah, that's, that's a story about how staffs are useless and don't get anything done. Are you done? Well, I could go on about how politics should be full of old men making decisions again and be, and the, the rugby atmosphere, but I think... I okay, thought, so anyway, <laughs> up until you ran conscious... I figured that two would probably shout at me and you'd probably shout at me and everyone would shout at me. Uh, up until the Iran-Contra scandal, it seemed unbreakable, but uh, the Iran-Contra, uh, the Reagan administration, after it, uh, the Reagan administration was damaged severely. I mean, Bush condemned any policy that would be diversion of payments, but repeatedly supported Reagan. And it just shows his loyalty. He, oh, he yeah, was a loyal right there. This scandal, of course, would later come to haunt uh, Bush, the, what was known as Iran-Contra. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bush had said he supports the president, and it was, oh fuck, I've got to find that clip. Where is the clip? Where he goes? It's not my. It's not. It's not fair to judge my corona. Rehash on it, right? Okay. Uh, George Bush, Dan Rather. Okay, so Dan Rather, who was interviewed with CBS, had famously said, "Yeah, don't be smart, thank you." That was it. He said to uh, they were disputing on Iran Contra, and obviously Dan Rather had walked off the set three days earlier in being cross. And Bush was like, hey, "I can't saying. remember if the other people at the meeting said he was apoplectic. I wasn't there at that point. You weren't. The, you weren't I'm in the not meeting. Suggesting. I'm just saying I don't remember it. I don't want to be argumentative, Mr. Vice President. Do, Dan. <laughs> no, this is not a no great sure night because I want to talk about why I want to be president." Why those forty-one percent of the people are supporting me? And, and Mr. I Vice don't President, think it's these fair questions to judge a whole career. It's not fair to judge my whole career by a rehash on Iran. How would you like it if I judge your career by those seven minutes when you walked off the set in New York? Well, now, would you like that, well, Mr. I have Vice President? For you, but I don't have respect for what you're doing here tonight, Mr. Vice President. God, that was good. That yes. I mean, I wish politicians more like that with the media. Just combative. Take them on. Take them on. Stop sucking up to the media. Take the media on. Let's go after them. You know, because as as actually, this is the one time I'm actually I'm going to use Boris Johnson's words. They do not like it up him, Mr. Speaker. They do not like it up him. When when the media are allowed to attack politicians as lazy and useless and incompetent, but if you start attacking them, oh, they're the sensitive flowers they are. Yeah, Daily Mail famous for that. You know they can brandish on their papers enemies of the people, but if you say I didn't have a very good piece, they're all in the corridors sobbing their eyes out. Oh, leave us alone and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but yeah, Iran Contra was a huge scandal because, I mean, the Contra part was a huge scandal, not the Iran part. So of course, uh, Ronald Reagan had shipped arms over to Iran uh, with uh, Bud McFarland to go and ensure hostages were freed. And every time they do an arms shipment, the hostages were freed, okay? 
But the issue was because they couldn't declare the profits made on the arms sales, they'd have to then they use the profits to go and fund the contras. Now, once of course, funding the contras is illegal via the Boland Amendment, which uh, said the, the, the Congress was providing, Congress could not provide any more funding to the contras, and the CIA was outlawed from helping the contras. So it violated yeah. the Boland Amendment, violated the law. But Bush always stuck by him, yeah. Mm. I agree, yeah. Hello? James, I'm speaking, don't worry. Do you want me to continue, James? Yes, go on, go on, go on. No, you can continue. It's your, it's your section. Oh, I finished that, man. Have you? Yeah, I finished that. Oh, shit, you have. All right, I will continue. I was thinking, why the hell have you impersonating a Trappist monk for, for goodness sake? Um, <laughs> so Bush, of course, runs for president in 88. George Will, who's the conservative columnist, referred to him as a lapdog for constantly selling out his views. Newsweek referred to him as a wimp. A bit harsh, a bit harsh. And Bush came third in Iowa after Senator, after, against Bob Dole, who came first, and Pat Robertson, who came second. And then Bush decided to run. Imagine you can see if the straddle line is still there, actually. Uh, Bush, Senator Straddle line. Oh, for God's sake. George H.W. Bush. No. No. All right, it's not there. I can't find it. But it basically said that they basically had to go Bob Dole for flip-flopping on tax increases and said Bush will never raise taxes, which is a stupid promise to make, in my view. But there we are. Um... Bush won the nomination after being negative and then being positive. Um, he was 10 points behind Michael Dukakis and all those blue-collar workers that flocked to Ronald Reagan were now willing to go for George uh, for Michael Dukakis. But he had one weakness, Dukakis. He was a liberal. God forbid anyone's a liberal. God forbid. Oh, yeah. Come on, God, God forbid you introduce the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, Social Security, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Jobs Cause, the Work Programs Administration, the National Recovery Administration. God forbid you believe in full employment, you believe in helping the poor, you believe in funding public schools and having national health insurance. Because, James, if people believe in those things, I can't see how this world can continue. <laughs> If, if people believe in helping the poor, uh, cleaning the roads, in so you have good housing, the people have a well-paid job, it'll be the end of civilization as we know it. Yeah. Fucking conservatives. They're always right-wing sods. Anyways, um, Bush attacked Dukakis relentlessly, relentlessly, going after him, not just for being a liberal, but for being soft on crime, for being uh, being incompetent on the finances, for being dumping stuff in Boston Harbor, and then of course they ran the Willie Horton ad. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. That is an amazing advert. Mm. 
I like that ad a lot. That morning in America, the Daisy ad with three of the best ads ever, and Nixon's now, Nixon now with four of the best ads ever commissioned in American politics. Yeah. Brutal, brutal, brutal. And oh, oh no, all of Ross Perot's ads were amazing. It, they weren't 30 seconds. No, 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 no. They were 30 minute broadcasts where Ross Perot would explain the details of his budget plans. That's my guy. That's my guy. <laughs> Are you going to have a nice commercial, Ross? No, I'm going to talk every plan of my budget. If, if I could do that, I would do that in a heartbeat. Just ball, uh, talk, talk about the ideas. Good man. Anyways, um, the trouble was Prescott Bush's so much as George W. Bush did not want to attack people. He was a gentleman. This is not the thing he did. And it was horrendous that, you know, a Bush, the gentleman of politics, was running one of those vile campaigns. And then, of course, he, um, he went to the... 1988 Republican convention and gave what I can only describe as I listened to it, of course, first during the lock, first lockdown actually it was in April, and he gave an amazing speech. Where is it? Move from the. We wanted to get out and make it on our own. Where is it? Where's the line about these things? But where? Oh, he's, your friend. So he's, he's four, four minutes in. He's promised to ban ocean dumping. Allow charter schools, um, expand Medicare, and strengthen it. He's promised to not raise taxes. He's promised to, it's all about the end of the Cold War. And then everybody had always perceived Reagan to be extremely cold, extremely harsh, nasty, uncaring, brute in some regards. So, what does Bush say at minute 45 to distance himself from Reagan amazingly well? teaching troubled children through your present there's no such that there is such a thing as reliable love some would say it's soft and insufficiently tough to care about these things but where is it written that we must act if we do not care as if we're not moved well i am moved i want a kinder and gentler nation I, that phrase, a kinder and gentler nation. Mm. Now, you and I would say things, well, who wants a harsh and brutal nation? No one wants to go around with a stick. We come on the poor, out you come. <laughs> no one's like that. But it played into a national feeling that there was a time to now, now we, you know, it's, remember, if you remember House of Cards, you remember Henry Collins, where he said, now we've said now we we can share our hard won gains with those less successful than ourselves, about mm. helping those who are more vulnerable, helping those who are needy, lifting people up, not constantly shoving them down, you know, not turning a blind eye to the homeless, not turning a blind eye to the sick, but genuinely helping them. And that I suppose was the old gentleman within him that he couldn't stand poverty, he couldn't stand homelessness, he couldn't stand failing public schools. Now. The trouble with conservatism, I think there are a lot of conservatives who, when they see poverty, when they see homelessness, when they see uh, failing schools and people suffering, they probably laugh in their face and say, you deserve it because you're poor. And that's the problem with conservatism. It, it, it has a compassion problem. It lacks compassion for people. Uh, here's Bush's famous line about taxes. And I'm the one who will not raise... 
And I'm the one who will not raise taxes. My opponent now says he'll raise them as a last resort or a third resort. But when a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. And I... My opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will, and the Congress will push me to raise taxes, and I'll say no, and they'll push, and I'll say no, and they'll push again, and I'll say to them, read my lips. I mean, that's not no new taxes. Everyone said, oh, when he raised taxes later, he broke his promise. No, 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 no. He says no new taxes. He did not say no increase in taxes. No new taxes. He raised no. income tax. Income tax is not a new tax. Income tax was done 74 years before by the Wilson administration. <laughs> but, but like I said, conservatives are too stupid to understand the meaning between new and current. Anyways, but that was, it was praised as one of Bush's greatest speeches. He was, he was good at it. He was very good at the convention speech. Uh, of course, they did the revolt. I don't think the revolving door ads there, but it was basically, they went to an Idaho and they went onto a mountain. They did a revolving door and it was basically saying, Michael Dukakis, as governor of Massachusetts, created a prison furlough program that allowed out ex-so-and-so murderers, so-and-so rapists, so a number of burglars. I mean, I'm saying so-and-so because I've forgotten the exact number of how many he let out. And they were playing on crime. They were playing on the flag. They were playing on the ACLU. Why were they doing that? Very simple. Bush, on many, many domestic policies, from healthcare to education to welfare, was to the far left of Ronald Reagan. He was to the left of the Republican Party. Right? So he couldn't go out there and say, look at all these welfare scroungers, look at these stupid people in education, look at these peasants in healthcare, because he didn't believe that. He was a gentleman. Uh, so what he said, he said, let's run on culture. Let's run on crime. Let's run on the flag. Because at least that's something he could agree with the public. Well, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't like those type of campaigns because I think those type of campaigns are for stupid people who don't understand policies. But, you know. Hey, hey hum ho. Anyways, Bush won a landslide, winning 427, 125 electoral votes, uh, 538, and winning 53% of the, the caucus's 45. And of course, Reagan has backed Bush very privately in his diary for the 88 Republican primary. Mm. Uh, I'll do the presidency and then you can do domestic policy and I'll do foreign policy. Okay. When Reagan left, he wrote a memo to uh, Bush saying, God bless you and Barbara. I will miss our weekly lunches. And he had that. He had that letter on his desk, along with a photo of Robin. And many didn't expect Bush to be a conservative. Even people like conservative activist and all-round wanker Richard Vigieri, who's a complete knob of a human being, said Bush should govern as a right of centre president. And Bush, of course, was Ronald Reagan's heir, but he was also Prescott Bush's son. And, ideolog- and the conflict in between ideological purity and the centre ground would screw him on domestic policies. Uh, when Bush was during transition, he, him, George W. Bush and James Baker were in effect kicking out all the Reagan people and put Bush people in. So they had no conservatives. Mm. Except Dan Quayle. Oh yeah, he picked Dan Quayle as the vice president for God's sake. Why? Just why? You could pick Jack Kemp. 
You could pick Bob Dole. You could pick uh, Alex Haig. You could pick uh, Pat Robertson. You could pick Howard Baker. You could pick um, uh, Jim Jeffords. You could pick Alan Spector. You could pick Lowell Weicker. Lowell Weicker. You could pick a vast array of reasonable, sensible Republicans, and you pick someone who is a ficko. And if you want to know what a ficko Dan Quayle was, this is the man who could not spell potato. This is the man who said, do we want to go forward into the past or back into the future? Mm. He's an idiot. He's an idiot. And they said, no, 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 we'll pick him to be the vice president. What an idiot he was. Anyways, um, so go on, James. Tell us about, and of course, his first act as president. Tell us about his domestic policies. Well, with hundreds of, I mean, well, I mean, when he's gone, there was hundreds of SNL um, loans going bankrupt. Saving the loans industry, yeah, saving the loans. Yeah. Saying loans, it was going to it was going to cost around about 150 billion dollars, uh, and that's basically because Reagan and uh, Baker messed it up. I mean, it's hilarious. It was utterly hilarious. So Ronald Reagan deregulates the savings and loan industries after Roosevelt had regulated them because it was clear if you ever deregulate them, you allow fraudsters, con artists, and charlatans to run the SNL stupidly, and they did. So when the SNL industry was going bankrupt. <laughs> What did Ronald Reagan say? Let's pray. And James Baker do? Let's pray that the recovery works. Let's just pray that something will happen. And you're thinking, wait a second, didn't the Democrats control the Congress? Why on earth did they not make political capital? Because then Speaker James R- Jim Rice was in his own scandal over, <laughs> over the SNL industry. And the Keating Five, where four Democrats and one Republican, John McCain, were in their own scandal over the Charles Keating saving the industries. So both political parties had buggered it. Yeah. So what did Bush do? He bailed it out. It was actually only going to cost $50 billion if they bailed it out in 86, but it would require a tax increase. And famously, the, the, the farmers could say, hold on a second, it only takes 30 billion to bail out the farming, but you don't have money to bail out farmers, you have money to bail out the SNL industry. Mm. But so and by it cost 150 billion because they did nothing. Yeah. Well, he, he did he signed the Whistleblower Protection Act as well of 1898. Of 1898, sorry. 1898. 1898. Sorry, I got all the numbers. <laughs> 1989. Which zoom in, you zoom in if you're finding it hard to read it, James. And I can read it now, I just misspoke. Strengthening the rights of whistleblowers. He was not a hundred and it was not a hundred years old when he took the when he took the oath of president. Um, Bush signed the Clean Air Act as well, working domestic Senate Majority Leader George Machella and House Speaker Tom Foley. And why did I put an A there? Fucking idiot. Democrat Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell and House Democrat Speaker Tom Foley. It passed the House. With 401 to 21, and the Senate 89 to 11. So, I mean, bipartisanship doesn't work. I'm sorry, you get a hundred, nearly 200 Democrats to vote for it, five to oppose it, and it passes the Senate with 40 odd, 40, 34 Republicans backing it. That's amazing. That's amazing. He he also worked with Bob Dole and George Mitchell and Tom Foley. Um, 
uh, to sign the Americans with Disability Act, yeah. with it passing the House with 377 to 28, with 232 Democrats and 145 Republicans endorsing it, and only five Democrats and 23 Republicans opposing it, with 30 abstentions. It passed 91 to 6, with 53 Democrats and 38 Republicans endorsing it. That was in the Senate. And as that an achievement. That's a as you just said, Dan, it just shows bipartisanship does work. I forgot to put the old Bob, the old with Bob Michael, who was an amazing House minority leader during the Reagan years. Bob Michael, who was in the minority, would always win, get votes by just getting Democrats to come with him. And Michael, of course, was a very decent human being. But it does work. You know, you've got to give your opponents a reason to vote for the bill. If you give them a reason, if you create legislation that has Republican ideas and Democrat ideas, you will have a landslide. And that shows it. You know, no bill would ever pass the House today 401 to 21. No. It can, because Republicans, it was, it was a gentleman's society. They were not hysterical people. They were not shouty people. They were very sensible, polite, dignified people that wanted to do the best. They were real patriots. Not these current band of fucking clowns we have in politics now that just run around screaming at fundraisers. Get out of politics. Politics mm. is for the Mitchells, it's for the Michaels, it's for the Foley's, the Bushes, the Tom, the, the Dolls, the gentlemen, sensible people that want to just get around the table and help people. It's all the gentlemen do. Gen politics is at its best when gentlemen are running it, not thugs. What has destroyed American politics? First of all, it's the campaign contributions. The fact that politicians now care more about lobbyists than they care about the people. If I could do three things to solve American politics, I'd do this right now. One, I would overturn Citizens United versus FEC that allowed unlimited donations. I would say the maximum donation you can give to one person is $1,000. That's it. Nothing else, 1000 And you can only donate twice. I would say that, and that this is part of the first ruling I have, that the TVs have to, the television stations have to liberate their airwaves so politicians can put their ads out for free. If you do that, you cut out a lot of the need for money in politics. Yeah. Secondly, I would end the primary process. Um, American, you know, the primaries have in America. Yeah. I would scrap that immediately. Immediately scrap it. Because it forces... Democrats to run to the left, if also Republicans to run to the right. I'd abolish gerrymandering on both sides. I'd get an independent commission to redistrict the boundaries with mix of Democrats and Republicans. I'd fix that immediately. And third, and this I think is the most controversial reform, it's I want to bring back the old gentleman's rugby club atmosphere. The House never worked better when it had Mike Mansfield and Bob Michael. The Senate never worked better when it had um, Everett Dirksen running it and it had Robert Byrd and Howard Baker running it. Politics works best when it's full of experienced, sensible people. This nonsense we have in politics now that we've got to have, you know, youthful people, that we've got to have uh, fresh faces at politics. No bollocks to that. We need experienced people, people who understand how to do legislation, how to work with American people who know that politics is about the people, not the leg the, the uh, lobbyists. Oh, that's something to do. I'd shut out all lobbyists. I'd allow both parties to have one lobby that they could turn to, 
So for the Democrats to be the AFL-CIO, because we love the, the unions, and if you don't love the unions, go to hell. And for the Republicans, they'll have to pick. <laughs> what do they want the defense unions? Do they want the, the abortion, the, the anti-abortion people? Do they want the National Rifle Association? Which one of their horrible, nasty, vicious sods would they like? But that's it. Okay. If you do all those reforms, you can clean up American politics. Clean yeah. it up. Because it's inc- anyone who studies American politics, as I do, and I know James does, will know it's an absolute shit show at the moment. Oh, absolutely. Democrats need to stop listening. I think above all, and we'll get back to watch, uh, don't worry. Above all, it requires both parties to stop thinking the crazy, stupid ideas I've ever heard, right? So for Democrats, the latest thing they want to do is abolish the filibuster. That's crazy. That's utterly, utterly batshit. What? So Republicans come in, they want to abolish Social Security. You will have no way of stopping them abolishing Social Security. You will have no way of stopping them abolishing Medicare. You will have no way of stopping them abolishing the Department of Education. Democrats are saying, uh, we need to abolish all private medical insurance. What, all of it? All of it? Why not regulate private medical insurance by saying that those companies that do not cover 100% of medical bills and will be, will be deemed as act of fraud and will be sued? That's what Bobby Jindal did in Louisiana. That's what Charlie Baker did in Massachusetts. Republican, they said, uh, why do Massachusetts and Louisiana have the lowest uninsured rates in the United States? Because they said to insurance companies, you will cover everything or we will sue you for fraud. They did it one time and they never had to do it again because it sent fear into those fraudulent bastards. But the Democrats and Republicans don't even get me started on what they need to do. When Republicans spend more time talking about what is a woman and did Joe Biden win the election rather than talking about the deficit, rather than talking about the military, rather than talking about entitlement reform, then you're stupid like Piers Morgan the other day, right? Tweeted, can I ask all liberals, what is a woman? Really? Is that the depth of your intelligence now? No, hmm. not let's fix illiteracy, not let's fix the roads, not let's rebuild our infrastructure, not let's tackle the deficit, not let's fix education. No, let's talk about culture. Culture is an irrelevance. Culture is an irrelevance to politics. Politics is legislation to improve people's lives. Culture is for films and stupid people to talk. If politics wants to degrade itself into stupid people, that's fine. And it can then go off into the wilderness. What was Maggie Thatcher's best teaching she ever had? The way you create a lifelong consensus is stop trying to be like others and be yourself. Politicians need to understand if they are not like me and James, basically, if they do not wait, if they're not like me, and they don't wake up with a constant passion about the issues. They go to sleep thinking about them, wake up thinking about them, spend the day thinking and come up with new ideas and solutions. If you're not doing that in politics, leave politics because you're mm-hmm. not cut out for it. And this is why, you know, coming back to George Mitchell, Tom Foley, Bob Michael, Bob Dole and George Bush, the reason I like them all is because... Tom Foley was experienced on the National Security Committee. George Mitchell was experienced on healthcare. Bob Michael was experienced in being a nice guy and getting bills passed, famously being the most effective minority leader in history. 
uh, Bob Dole was known for his work on disability rights, on Medicare, on uh, Social Security, famously fixing Social Security in 83 with the Bipartisan Commission, and Bush was known for being a moderate. You know, the 83 Commission, where you had Howard Baker, you had Bob Dole, you had Tip O'Neill, you had uh, Jim Wright, you had um, Robert Byrd, you had uh, Alan Greenspan, George Bush, Ronald Reagan, on a commission together, doing one thing, fix Social Security. Right? What did they do? They raised taxes, they cut benefits. That worked, okay? In the 90s, Bill Clinton was about to fix Social Security by raising taxes, slow benefit growth, and savings accounts, which would have fixed it for 100 years. The media didn't let him fix it because they want to like, ooh, the president's had sex with an intern. Stupid idiots. 2006, Bush wanted to privatise it. Obama did nothing for Social Security, even though it was going to run bankrupt, and Trump probably made it worse. Could you imagine now, seriously, uh, part, both parties sitting down together working on Social Security? Hmm. Sorry, you cut out. Were you even listening? I was. You cut out. Oh right. I was saying, could you? I said, could you even imagine both parties sitting down together fixing a, a fixing social security? No, no, not a chance. No, you could fix, <laughs> No, you couldn't, and that's the issue. You know, how do you fix it? Very simple. You raise the top payroll tax from six point two to ten percent. You get all wages under payroll. You get all people to pay payroll that are under the tax under wage earners. You get all wages and pay payroll taxes. You um, slow benefit growth to uh, cost of living. You slow benefit growth for the top seventy percent. You raise benefits to twenty percent to twenty percent across the board. You index cost of living adjustments for the rate of inflation. You raise the retirement age from sixty seven to sixty nine by the year twenty forty. You um, take the top top two percent out of social security. Those earning above half a million dollars, mainly because they don't need it. You take the, take the top twenty five percent widowers out of social security. You raise the, the widowers benefit to all of social security. You uh, also create a 5% increase benefits to $1,800 a month for those above 80 and $1,600 a month in those in the poverty line. And that way you fix the whole system for at least 100 years. Both parties will never go for it. Why? Democrats will never accept... Oh, and you also have uh, addi additional savings accounts on top of Social Security that over time become the main source of uh, welfare for the poor. Why does that work? It won't work because Democrats will never accept raising the retirement age for some stupid reason. They believe that you cannot raise the age of retirement from 67 to 69 by over the next 22 years. What? So someone who's, someone who's 44, are you saying that they're that stupid that they cannot figure out how to save for their retirement by the time they turn 69? Really? And Republicans will never accept tax increases because they all suck off Grover Norquist, who believes that any tax increases are bad, and then said his idol was Ronald Reagan, who realised that he raised taxes 14 times. Mm. Anyway, rant over. You done? Well, it was, I'd say that's a fairly articulate one, actually. It's an articulate rant. Of... But a rant, uh, nevertheless. Yes. <laughs> hey, so... If you and know well, to... you'll know that I have an ability to talk for long periods of time without even drawing breath. Yeah. Back to the podcast uh, episode at hand. Uh, George a very good Bush. Episode. Thank you very much, because I was talking about the spirit of bipartisanship. And if you read your own fucking notes, you would know why. 
Hold on, I know why. I, <laughs> right, I'm generally going to shut up now and let you speak. Okay, so running a 4% deficit of GDP, this mm. is George Lepeller, um, he was running a 4% deficit of GDP with the deficit forecasted to go into the hundreds of billions of dollars, mm. plus new taxes were having to go up. Um, so he wanted to do a 5 uh, cent in gas tax, and Republicans will will one particular... Uh, he wants to do five percent. Republicans will one particular one. I'm going to say well. I'm going to say well. One particular one. One one particular one. One in particular. One person in particular, uh, Newt Gingrich, didn't look favorably on the. Uh, <laughs> on the say it. <laughs> didn't look favorably on the tax. Uh, he went absolutely crazy, and and. Uh, <laughs> um, and this one home on some of the notes. Keep going. I mean, this this was a time when top rates were cut from seventy percent to twenty eight percent, and basic rates were lowered from twenty eight percent to fifteen percent. So, I mean, it was a time of tax cuts. So, yeah. a tax increase would be completely could be counterintuitive. I mean, when um, cut it from seventy to twenty eight, and then twenty eight to fifteen, Bush supported it, and of course, Democrats had written the bill with him. But it's just like they said, we can't have a tax increase. We've been cutting them for eight years. For God's sake, can't you still make a 5% gas tax? No. Anyway, keep going. The 1990 budget deal was hammered out. Democrats would accept only 2% increases in spending, a huge cut, and Republicans would raise taxes. It was harsh, but uh, it was totally necessary. Oh, the time. Bush, Bush raised six times. Ronald Reagan raised them 11 times. But Reagan never got the, uh, never got the stick for it because Ed Meese said he never talked about it. So basically, Bush did talk about the tax increases, and that's why he was, um, and, that, and that's why he was slated for it. Reagan just refused to ever call on tax increases, refused to speak about them at all. What did he call so, them? He called them tax changes or something like that. Adjustments. Adjustments, there we go. Adjustments. Mr. President, you have now closed a trillion dollar loopholes. No, 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 it's an adjustment. It's an adjustment. <laughs> but no, the deal was sensible. The deal was perfectly sensible. If you're willing to, Democrats are willing to cut spending down to 2% increases, Republicans, you have to raise taxes. That's what mm-hmm. you know, Simpson Bowles analyzed. You know, cut spending by $2 trillion, raise taxes by $2 trillion. You yeah. cannot have a system where it's all tax increases on the one hand or spending cuts on the other. If you want to fix the UK right now, you are, over the next five years, going to have to cut spending by about £100 billion and raise taxes by £100 billion or raise revenue by £100 billion. Over the next five years, you're going to have to do that. Over the next six years, you have to do that. So you can get, not only get the budget imbalanced by year three, but get the debt on a clear downward path. Now, how you do that, you're going to have to do at least a three, four, a 2% cut each year in public spending, no matter what, across the board. You exempt uh, international development, you exempt education, but that's it. Everything else gets cut for two years, five years straight, and you uh, do the tax reforms I outlined in my private piece. Mm-hmm. But it'll, it's going to be hard to be, you're going to have to do something like that. It's going to be very harsh and very tough, but it's going to have to be done. Otherwise, we're going to have a debt crisis that's never going to stop. Well, I mean this. I mean this debt. This debt um, crisis that Bush uh, uh, made the deal over was, or were made made the deal. Uh, not the deal, sorry. Yeah, the deal. Yeah, it was a bar It was a bar partisan deal over five years. It would cut the deficit by five hundred billion dollars, 
um, and uh, it was basically $100 billion a year. I'll balance it by 1995. Newt bolted him. Um, that tried to defeat the Democrats. I, um, I like Newt so much. He actually just left. <laughs> I mean, he just said, nope, I'm not backing this. Even though he stayed in the room so he was going to back it, he said, nope, 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 nope. Newt Gingrich, Phil Crystal. Anyway, the difference between no, both... No, 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 shut up. <laughs> says, how can you be effective against Clinton? And I'm getting... Just didn't appreciate, I think, what... No, and it the... created a permanent break with newest person at the table. This is Democratic no, no, just This is Gingrich talking about and so the last budget deal. ...to the budget negotiations of 90 that all blew up. Yeah, let's talk about that. As people, I think, again in the blur of 25 years ago and you know, people today who weren't around, well, you were a leader and then you became, then we won in 94, you became a speaker. But there was this huge intervening moment in 90 when I think you went from being a important figure in the conservative movement and in Washington and the House to very important, I mean, really in a level, don't you think a level of national fame? Yeah, there, there's a, there leadership. Was a difference. It was a it, uh, leap. And so talk about the whole budget deal. So President Bush convenes the leadership of both parties well, to discuss, what, what, discuss what the budget. Is, look, I mean, to, to be fair to them, and I've, I've, I've tried to describe this uh, one time uh, to Bob Woodward, and he was trying to write on this stuff. I said, look, if, if you were Dick Norman, who was the director of the budget, you were John Sununu, Governor Sununu, who was the chief of staff of the president. And you came to me and said, will you come in the budget negotiations? And I say to you, I'll never vote for a tax increase. And you say, well, President you Bush say, having pledged we're, we're, to read you know, my lips, my lips new taxes, right? Yeah. And you say, well, of course, we really don't want to get to a tax increase. And I say, well, I'm not going to vote for a tax increase. Then in the Washington tradition, if I walk in the room, I've just signaled that, of course, in the end, I'll vote for a tax increase. And so in a sense, they had a legitimate gripe that by Washington standards, what I should have said to them is, it's obvious you guys are going to sell out and I won't participate. That would have been honorable, okay? <laughs> and they would have said, Gingrich is going to fight us. Instead, they kept saying to themselves, in the end, he's going to cave. Right. And so the last weekend, I, they called and they briefed me. And I said, that, that's crazy. I can't be for that. And it was a very eerie moment. I mean, we, we went around, you had all the Republican leadership and the president uh, sitting, and remember, this is troops are in the, in the desert. The whole routine is going on here. Bush is relatively popular at this point. Right. 91% uh, approval rates. What is this, like, like, here, September 90. 90, yeah. 90. Yeah. No, this, this would have been in. Uh, oh, it was 72 then. It was the fights in, it is in September. Yeah, you're right. I think so. It was the troops already are there. And, and, and uh, it's already gotten, it's just gotten steadily worse, okay? Right. Uh, and, and the truth is, in retrospect, probably I should have I should have left and said, I'm gone, this is crazy. But I kept saying, they kept saying, well, really, well, it'll really be balanced by the time we're done. And I kept saying, if it isn't, I'll vote now. And so they thought we were dancing. Um, and it was a pretty eerie moment to go around the room, starting with the House and Senate leadership was there together. Uh, I was literally the newest person at the table. This is Democratic. No, no, just, just, just And is this at Andrews or at the White this House? This is at the White House. Everything's been done. The deal's been cut. At Andrews Air Force Base. And, and right. we're now sitting there with the president. And, and he makes his pitch. And, uh, you know, the Secretary of Treasury makes his pitch. And then they start with, I guess, Senator Dole, who is the leader at that point. And they go around from the most senior, Bob Michael, and so I'm the last guy. Hmm. And when they get to me, I just say, you know, I can't do it. Wow. This breaks your word. It is a huge mistake. 
and I won't do it. And so CNN, which was the only news channel at that time, has this split wow. screen and so does C-SPAN. And you have all the Republican leaders and the president walking into the Rose Garden and me walking out of the front door. Wow. And up on the hill where they've been watching all this, Bob Walker, who was my deputy at the time, had assembled our whip operation. And so when I walked in, they all knew exactly where we were. And I said, look, this is, if you want to side with the president, you can, it's legitimate. And I think nobody in the whip organization sided with the president. And we beat him in the Republican conference by something like 109 to 70. I remember that so vividly because I was, you know, Dan Quinn. Does that explain it? Absolutely. There you are. It's good when you have material like that. You can just bring out materials for people to listen to. Yeah. Um, where, where was I? Where was I? You were talking about the bipartisan budget agreement, which reduced that by $100 billion. I was, yes, yes, I was. It was, yeah, so it was five years. It would cut the deficit by $500 billion, uh, which is $100 billion a year, or balance it by 1995. Now, Newt bolted and tried to, uh, tried to defeat the Democrats. Um, the difference between most uh, and President George W. Bush, uh, H.W. Bush, was George was a gentleman. <laughs> not a fuck, and um, it it also so, so, the LBJ comparison, wasn't it? Because LBJ would famously say to, to people, "Vote for this bill, or I'm going to cut your balls off." George Bush can never make a threat to another person. That was not. No, it's a complete opposite to LBJ, wasn't it? Well, when it comes to no, I mean, if you were describing LBJ, you say he's a fuck, not a gentleman. But when it comes to describing uh, Bush, you're describing him as a gentleman, not a fuck. LBJ famously pissed on a congressman once because he wouldn't listen to him. <laughs> well, it, it also ensured the pay-g system, is that how you say it? Pay-as-you-go, yeah. P-A-Y-G. Pay-as-you-go. Yeah. Pay-as-you-go pay system. That for, for every tax cut would have to be, would have a spending cut. And for every spending program, there would also have to be tax increase. Um, that was repealed by George W. Bush later on, his son, which just shows that... Uh, a complete dickhead he was, yes. Yeah. Um, the House of Florida could not count the votes correctly. <laughs> Al Gore won, nevertheless. The House voted it down and then Bush dropped the 5%. PAYG is an amazing system to operate off, in my view, personally. You know, every spending cut has to come with... Every tax cut needs a spending cut. Every tax pro increase needs a spending programme. It ensures you always have balanced expenditure, balanced budgets. That is a very, very sensible fiscal system to operate off. And it's a shame we've abandoned it in this country as well. Yeah. Anyway, well, the House uh, voted it down. And of course, yes. what does Bush do? Bush decides to drop the gas tax and say, no, 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 let's go bolder. Let's raise income tax. <laughs> let's raise income tax. 28 to 31 top rate, 21 to 24 middle rate. And it was so fucking bold. The spending goes a tax increase. I mean, it was since it was Simpson Balls esque. It was Simpson Balls. Yeah. yeah. Um. However, uh, here comes to a mistake that George H. W. Bush made. Yeah. Um. Big mistake. After third, good Marshall. Um. Did he? He died, didn't he? Burger Marshall. No, he retired in '91, but he, he died retired. Right. He retired. I can't remember Great which man. one was. Great man. Yeah. Well, after after he retired you know, from being Supreme Court Justice, um, he was a liberal icon, really. Yeah, uh, Clarence, uh, George H.W. Bush decided to appoint Clarence Thomas. Um, 
definitely one of the worst constitutional judges. No, 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 not one of the worst. Not one of the worst. The worst. Oh. The worst. Actually, no, Amy Coney Barrett is actually the worst of all time because she's so fucking thick. But Clarence Thomas, for a long time, was the worst constitutional judges in history. Okay? Mm. He's not an originalist. He's an activist. He's an activist conservative. And those type of judges get me on my... Get my skin up. Because an originalist is not about being an activist. It's about reading the Constitution, strictly interpreting the Constitution, but making accounts for style sizes, making accounts for the precedents. Mm. Clarence Thomas said, no, we're not making any account for precedents. We're just going just gonna to uh, look at the Constitution. What else is in the Constitution? We'll accept it. And it's not in the Constitution. We're voting it down. Yes. Well, he was um idiot. He was just to, just to show how controversial he was. Now, most Supreme Court justices get passed by quite a fair amount. And he got passed. He was confirmed yeah. for 52 to 48. Can I say, all the seven Democrats that voted him through, go fuck yourself. <laughs> go fuck yourselves. The, those Democrats that voted him through, you had Republicans went against him. For goodness sake, the, the Senate votes always votes justices right at the time by humongous margins, right? Uh, Scalia 99 to nothing, Ginsburg 96 to 3, Souter 90 to 9, um, uh, Berger without even a justice, uh, without even a hearing, sorry, uh, Warren confirmed unanimously, Thurgood Marshall 89 to 11. This was the closest margin in history, famously because of Anita Hill. The media trivialized it, the whole Anita Hill scandal, you know, Thomas being a filthy fellow. But in my view, the issue with Clarence Thomas was not the fact he was a filthy fellow. That's an issue, don't get me wrong. He had the worst reading on the Constitution. And I listened to his fucking hearings. I'd sit through it and listen to him talk about the Constitution with such nonsense. He didn't know anything about it. He didn't know what the Fifth Amendment was. He didn't know what the Eighth Amendment was. He didn't tell you what the Fourteenth Amendment was. He's not qualified, nor was he competent. But he said, ah... Well, why did they have to keep him? Because he was a black justice. And 100 white senators could not vote down the, the second black justice in US history. Mm. Or at least that's what the thick media told us. I think it's because they, they voted, they did. I, I, I don't even know why they voted him through. Why? <laughs> you, you, you don't vote down Robert, you vote down Robert Bork, who's an amazing legal mind, and you don't vote down someone who's worse than Bork. Really? Mm. Really? So you don't vote, you vote down a man who is praised by Democrats and Republicans, who is praised by every person he's ever met, who is praised by every legal scholar, who's praised by liberal and conservative justices, Robert Bork, and was confirmed to the US Court of Appeals 100 to nothing in the Senate, was 82. And you vote him through Clarence Thomas, who is hated by liberals hated by evolutionists and the only reason they voted through was because John Danforth said so. John Danforth, for God's sake. Danforth was the senator from Missouri but was extremely respected by Democrats. He was, he was like, he was sort of the Howard Baker figure. He was extremely held in high regards by the Democrats. And when they wanted to, as I think it was Robert Byrd said, when I want to learn how to speak Republican, I just get John, John, John on the phone. And because Danforth had basically said, the man is sound, he's a good man, he's honest, he's respectable. 
Democrats said, okay, I can vote for him. Turns yeah. out, whilst John Danforth was honest, respectable and decent and a very good senator from Missouri, Clarence Thomas was not. God help us, let's put that fucking clown. Well, besides, besides the fact that Clarence Thomas, um, the economy, there were some other issues. <laughs> the yeah. economy was declining and the <laughs> left wing have public work programmes and the right wing have enterprise zones. Both, Both are very good ideas. There was severe economic insecurity with the recession of 1992 arriving onto unemployment going to 7.4%, and Bush would not extend unemployment compensation as increasing the def- as it would increase the deficit. Now, when Bush wanted to increase consumer spending, um, when Bush wanted to increase consumer spending, it would lead to an increased inflation, that, and the media said, me, oh, the growth, increasing growth and increasing income growth, sorry. Well, I mean, to be fair, an increase in consumer spending would increase inflation as well. Yes, it would, yes, it would, yeah. Yes. But it, it, it would also, as you say, yeah, increase economic growth. However, the media said it was uh, unsympathetic. And that, was but, that was so stupid, the media said that. If you buy more, increase growth, you then have the money to get out of the recession, you have the money to create jobs. And then he said, no, people don't have money. What, people are eating out of bins, are they? God, journalists are so stupid. Well, Alan Bush was represented by many as uh, callous and a lack of compassion for the poor. I mean, af- I mean, I mean, that must have been really kicking the stomach for him after all, he's, after all he did for me, showing how caring he was. disabled, clean air. He was creating jobs. He's always been a moderate centrist. And they said, look, the reason they did Callis was because the, it stuck with Reagan, right? Even people who liked Reagan knew he did not give a damn about the poor. He didn't give a damn about the suffering of individuals. And I think what they were doing was they were sticking that label onto Bush to see if it could stick. Yeah. Then he goes and spots NAFTA, which was another stupid idea. <laughs> well, I mean, in a recession, what do we do? Oh, I know. Let's support free trade because that will do. That will solve the recession. It won't. It will exacerbate the recession and cause further decline. Free trade agreements always cause decline. Well, the decline in jobs um, and after. went to Japan, and there was a and there was a sick of there was a surge of Japanese crap. And the and we're sick of the draft. I can't I can't read. I can't read. Hey, so Bush, as you say, Dad, Bush, Bush decided to support NAFTA despite the decline in jobs, and indeed went to Japan. And Bush was sick of the Japanese Prime Minister. And uh, basically, he had a case of the flu, and he went and he actually vomited in the Prime Minister of the Japanese Prime Minister's lap. <laughs> oh God. And when we talk about his foreign policy, you'll understand why that's why it's not really that's just tragic. When we talk <laughs> about his foreign policy in a second, you're gonna realize why that's absolutely tragic. Right. And let's talk about his foreign policy, shall we? Yeah. Christ, how much did I do domestic policy? Oh my goodness, it only two versions, it's took nearly half an hour on domestic policy. Anyway, uh Bush, when he became president, the first thing he did was he agreed not to overthrow the Marxists in Nicaragua. Nicaragua and uh, prevented them from providing their free elections and were with the Soviet Union 
changing with Gorbachev. He pledged the Gorbachev famously pledged the United the, the renounce force and would reduce troops in Europe by half a million. The Cold War was coming to an end. Bush decided to install, instead call the uh, for the end of containment and call for a new response to the of the nineties, which was a bit too timid. Gorbachev said, "If it, if change was to occur, how could we inhibit in changing our neighbors?" Bush didn't meet the, the Soviet leader for nearly one year. Stupidly, stupidly, she met with him immediately. Um, but he said he went to Poland and met with Left Lorenzo of Solidarity, and in Poland, and of course, the Solidarity Union won the elections in Poland. And uh, Bush spent time with Left Lorenzo and wanted to create a new structure where the USSR was brought into the solution rather than being defeated. That actually is a very genius thing to do, right? Why? Because how did Germany elect Hitler in 33? Germany elected Hitler because of the Treaty of Versailles in 18, where the Germans were in effect beaten and crushed, right? So if you because of demoralized Germany, Hitler rose to power and the Nazis took control. Bush's theory, and I think it's actually a very good theory, was if we just gently lay it out, just gently lay, let the Soviet Union die a very dignified death. So we still destroy them. We let them die dignified rather than just basically explosion the situation. The Soviet Union won't have any backlash, which is true. Might be. Yeah. Um, Bush, in effect, wanted to ensure the USSR did not feel defeated. And with East Germans seeking asylum and Hungarians opening their borders and with Australia, Austria protesting for reform, the SU was coming to an end. Now, famously, when there was talk about East and West Germany uniting, Bush wanted them to unite. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher didn't want them to unite. Francois Metternich did not want them to unite because it was, you know, Francois Metternich had the famous line, I like Germany so much, I think there should be two of them. And, you know, they because they thought that because Germany was split up, they could never fight a war with them. And West Germany was very good, don't get me wrong, West Germany was very powerful. But the Germans, could, as one, could, as, as two, could not win the wars. And, of course, the East Soviet Union had supported... Um, having East Germany because it was seen as their prize because famously, you know, the Soviet Union took 20 million deaths for us in the Second World War, which we all have seemed to have just written out of history. The fact that whilst we were out defending Africa, fucking in 42, the, the SU were taking batterings in the Eastern European, in Eastern Europe. Yeah. One of the reasons that we could defend our empire against the Italians in 1942 and in effect defeat the Ital- Italians in 43, therefore weakening, weakening the German forces even further, was because the Soviet Union were taking all the batterings on the, forcing the Germans to fight on the eastern side and therefore neglecting the Western Europe. We've written that out of history because Joseph Stalin was nothing more than a murderous, psychotic bastard. Yes. And uh, the USSR felt understandably that, of course, they should have prize. The 61, of course, the Berlin Wall had gone up, even built because Jack Kennedy was incompetent. And October 89, the Berlin Wall came crashing down. The symbol of the Cold War was forced to come down by good riddance to it. East and West relations were finally being forced to unite. When Bush was in the Oval Office, it was him and Jim Baker in the Oval Office, and, the, and I think it was me, Jenna said, you know, you don't seem very elated. And, um, you know, Bush said, you know, I'm elated, but I'm not an emotional kind of guy. Now, Bush was elated, right? He wrote in his diary, he was elated. No one could deny he was not elated. But why was he not celebrating? Because he didn't want to stick it into Gorbachev. He didn't want to stick it to Gorbachev. Because he knew he was still going to have to work with, with Gorbachev. So, 
you had some saying, go to Berlin Wall, go and dance on the wall, go and enjoy it. And Buster was very dignified, very polite, because he knew if he could take the hit domestically, he'd improve his relations with Gorbachev massively. And it did. It did. Even though you had Democrats and Republicans condemning him for not dancing on the wall, stupid idiots, he wouldn't do it. And he also wouldn't do it because famously when the Hungarians had tried to uprise the Soviet Union in 56, there was a there was an illusion that the US would come and defend them. They didn't, and the Hungarians had the Hungry Massacre of 56. And Bush wanted to bring Germany into NATO. And that was massive, right? Because yeah. if you did that, that would in effect end the Soviet Union. Yes. That would do it, right? Because Germany was their base. Germany was their way into Western Europe. Germany is part of the world domination theory. So what does Gorbachev, Gorbachev agrees to let Germans have a free decision on whether or not to join NATO? Hmm. Do not underestimate how massive, massive of a breakthrough this is. Because Gorbachev could never agree to ending, uh, letting them join willingly. So just let them join by a vote. And this was the last, and I think this was really the last of wise men. Bush was the last of era of the wise men, of sensible bipartisans and centrists who want to work with people rather than constantly just go around doing light shows around the world. And he has the credit, he does the credit, he governed as a bipartisan centrist. He governed, he didn't govern as a conservative, he governed as a moderate, he governed as, as the wise men. And I like the wise men. You know, so as the Soviet Union finally came crushing down, uh, in August 1st, 1990, Iraq had invaded its neighbour Kuwait in a dispute for oil, of all fucking things. You would think Iraq had enough oil, but no. Bush decided, instead of being a, ne- a neocon and basically immediately going in, he decided to go and get the United Nations inside. So famously, he got off the, the F, uh, Marine One and said, you know, this act will not stand. This will not stand. This aggression against Kuwait. And James Baker talked to him out of immediate action said, go to the UN. He asked Mrs. Thatcher, and what did Mrs. Thatcher say? Oppressors must be stopped, they must be thrown out, and they must be thrown out so decisively they can never do it again. And it's in one of those rare instances where me and Mrs. Thatcher are in total agreement. I emphasize the word rare because I practically agree with her on nothing else. But on that, we're, we're one. You can never ever appease aggressors. You can never ever appease dictators. You do not appease them, you throw them out. Having said that, Arab Spring. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it doesn't always work. <laughs> um, James Baker ensured, I mean, James Baker, when he heard the Soviet Union was in, is, um, uh, when the, the Gulf War was occurring, so what did he do? He went to the Soviet Union. And what happened? The Soviet Union endorsed America. For the first time in 46 years, the Americans and the Russians were on the same side. That was, in effect, the end of the Cold War. Uh, Bush offered US troops Saudi Arabia to protect oil fields, therefore strengthening Saudi relations. And the operation to protect Saudi Arabia was called Operation Desert Shield, and uh, not Desert Storm, that was to protect Kuwait, on the notion that Iraq would attack Saudi Arabia next. Bush's, con- con- Bush's contacts from the UN, the CIA, and the VP was a huge, and of course, he talked to 29 leaders in the first week. He speaks to leaders every day. Bush would, I mean, Bush was very good with this diplomacy. I, I think this is good stuff. He said, he called them up and he would just talk to them as a friend. He'd say, you know, how are you? How's things in your country? Is there any way I can help? You know, what can I do for your children? Stuff like that. And it was just building up a personal friendship with them. 
Why? Because then, because he had such, when he had to do something difficult, he had such large quantities of capital, he could do it. And the trueness of a friend is, can you be with them in the bad times as well as the good times? People who are fair weather friends and just stick with you in times of good are the first people who will be pushed into hell once Judgment Day occurs. Uh, Bush was reminded of the Iran hostage crisis and, and how President Carter was dealing with thugs and barbarians, as Ronald Reagan called them. And the horrors of Saddam occupation of Kuwait, you know, the, the raping of Kuwaiti women, the executions, the looting of Kuwait. And, you know, as Bush said, he was dealing with Hitler revisited a totally uh, a total, a totality and brutality unprecedented in modern times, as George Bush put it rightly. Saddam threatened, of course, to use Western hostages as shields and kill Kuwaitis. And the Iranians uh, had said the, if the US declared war on Iraq, on Iraq, they would fight America. Forgetting the fact that for 10 years, Iran and Iraq have been fighting a war against each other. With Iraq doing scud missile attacks against Israel, there was genuine fear of World War Three. actually. Because yeah. if Israel fought, then the whole of NATO would have to fight. And if NATO fought, you'd have World War Three. With the protests and rage, Bush was still going to do what was right, not what's politically acceptable. You'll often find that what is right is not often politically acceptable or not media acceptable, but it's still the right thing to do. Bush concluded that if the UN backed him, then Congress would have to endorse him because it would be because it would be a legal war. And when the UN backed him, it was much easier for the Democrat, for you know Jim Baker or George Bush or whoever, to go on the House and say, "Hold on a second, Mr. Senator, you're not backing the president, but the Prime Minister of Ethiopia is backing the president. Work with that one out." <laughs> It passed in the House, the resolution 250-283, and it passed in it 52-47, and the war was going to happen. Bush had thanked Congressman for voting for the war. And on January 1691, Operation Desert Storm began. And for 38 days, the US led Operation called Operation Desert Storm, basically just going, basically bombing it to death. And they did a ground assault, and it finished in 100 days. 100 hours, sorry. Hours, hours, not that. too long. 100 hours the ground assault was finished within four days. They won the war. Now, there was a dispute about whether or not to just literally. Now, the resolution said you got to kick Iraq out of Kuwait, right? It did not say let's get Saddam Hussein out of Baghdad. It was get Saddam out of Kuwait. There were some neocons who said, why didn't he go into Baghdad? Why didn't he get rid of Saddam Hussein? Well, funnily, as James Baker said, they asked me that, and then after 2003, no one ever asks me that now. Yes. It was a huge victory, a huge victory. Bush's approval, went to, Bush's approval rating after the victory went to 89%. And uh, Bush had actually wanted to get rid of Saddam Hussein by uh, using the Sunnis and the, the Shias in the South and the Kurds in the North. But Saddam, in effect, just tortured the Sunnis and Shias and the Kurds. Um, with the Soviet, the Soviet Union, of course, dissolved in December '91, and his final call was Gorbachev's final call was to George Bush, and of course, Boris Yeltsin uh, became the Prime Minister, the President of Russia. Yeah. Now for the '92 re-elect, so of course, the start of the '92 State of the Union, it was he was in effect praising the fact America had won the Cold War, I and mean, it was a huge victory. Um, I mean. I mean, I mean, it's surprising or anything. They didn't win the 1992 election. I mean, oh, he won a war. It's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. 
he got he got rid of he got rid of the USS uh the USA's biggest enemy since the nineteen forties. I mean it's it's ridiculous to think that he didn't oh, win it. Oh we'll find out why. First of all, when Lee Atwater had died of brain cancer in nineteen ninety one, uh Bush had no fight within him. Lee Atwater was the guy who ran the Willie Horton ad, who ran all the attacks and was a friend of Bush's when he died. Bush had lost the women to Gentleman George. Uh, the Republicans were in crisis because with Pat Buchanan running to the right wing, uh, running a very much of a right wing campaign, and Bush couldn't campaign successes like the Clean Air Act or the Americans with Disabilities Act because conservatives did not believe in having clean air or helping the disabled. Bush won 37, sorry, Buchanan won 37 vote in New Hampshire, Bush won 63, and Ross Perot was running as an independent two days later. And the Democrats, well, they were going to run Bill Clinton, who was focusing on triangulation, ending welfare as we know it, being tough on crime, and ensuring opportunity for all, responsibility from all, reaching out to moderates, and winning back the blue-collar people who voted for Ronald Reagan. Bush had campaigned on the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, the lack of threat of nuclear annihilation, but he couldn't boast about his domestic policies because Republicans wouldn't agree with him. It was a pocketbook issues election, right? It was as Clint as you know the Clinton campaigns and the economy stupid, and the Republicans were squirming about domestic policy because beyond Jack Kemp, the Republicans had no serious and beyond Jack Kemp and possibly Bob Dole, they had no serious domestic policy thinkers. Bush did appoint Jim Baker to become the head of the re-elect, James Baker. And famously, Paul Begala, who was Clinton's campaign manager, said when he heard James Baker become the campaign manager, he was scared to death because uh, Baker was the architect of the 84 and 88 wins and was an absolute genius in every way, shape and form. And when the second debate happened, they did t- I mean, it was hilarious. They, they organised three debates and they did a town hall debate. And I'm just still thinking today, you wanted to do a town hall debate with Bill Clinton. What? what? You, you, you think you can beat Bill Clinton, the master of political artistry, in a town hall debate? Not a chance. And um, the recession actually had come to an end by the third quarter with the growth at 2.7%. And it was a it was a boom, the boom had come out. But however, for and actually the campaign was going so well for Bush that on the day before four days before election day, they were tied. Politically, they were tied, they were polls tied. Yes. You know, Republicans had started the campaign, uh, started Labor Day on September, being 29 points down to 29 points behind Bill Clinton, and they finished being tied. Why did it change? Because of Iran-Contra, where basically Casper uh, Weinberger, all-round knobhead, said the Bush was out of the loop and he lied about Iran-Contra. Uh, and also Ross Perot got back into the race in, in October 92, there's Ms. Damien ads, and Bill Clinton won. Three yeah. electoral votes, Bush 168, 43% people voted for Bill Clinton, 37% for George Bush, 19% for Ross Perot. Interesting question was, if Perot wasn't there, could Bill Clinton have won? Who knows? And as Bush left the White House, he made he made admitted privately that he was an asterisk between Reagan and Clinton, which is true, but he's still a good man. Anyway, here's my legacy take on the president, on President Bush. He won the Cold War. He saved the savings and loans. He strengthened the Clean Air Act. He saved Europe from destruction. He worked bipartisanly, and he was a gentleman. I mean, everyone forgets. Everyone says, oh, the 80s and the tax cuts and the boom was all Ronald Reagan. 
Hold on a second. If Bush hadn't saved SNL, right? If he allowed savings loans to go bankrupt, you would have had a depression. You would have had a depression. And who would have been blamed for the depression? Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. So the strength of Reagan's legacy comes from Bush being an amazing president. And I think personally, he is one of my favorite Republican presidents of all. Mm. Well, I think, I think, I think all the things you, as you said that you won the Cold War, SNL saved that. You know, uh, strengthening uh, uh, the Clean Air Act. You know, and save Europe from destruction. You know, was a very, very strong bipartisan. Oh, and took hard choices with the budget. Took hard choices. Yeah. With the I mean, I mean, he was a loyal man. He made uh, even in his early years the fact that he made friends with uh, as when he was ambassador to the UN. The, his foreign relations with uh, with the enemies of America, if you, if you will, you know, the China and the USSR, the way you could make relations with them very easily. These were all these were all great things and the fact um, as you say dad he was a gentleman as well which you don't really get in politics anymore and you add all of these together you add this and you get and you get you get the making of a great president now the only thing the, the, the thing is is that it was his election to lose in 1992 it was his to lose yeah. and he lost it he, he got given it, it, it wasn't the situation when in normal days where you know you have where you have oh even them can win it was he could only lose and it was just Bill Clinton Bill Clinton didn't win I think yeah, George Bush lost is what happened in that. Oh, I think Bill Clinton won because I, this is what I think I think George Bush was an amazing president HW not W I think George W was a god awful president but I think the Clinton campaign in 92 was probably the best campaign ever alright he didn't show in the votes but how do you overturn a Republican landslide with a Democrat landslide he went to the center. He started talking about social values, about responsibility, opportunity. And it gave those Republicans who were worried, who voted for Jimmy Carter in 76, who had voted for Reagan and Bush, a reason to come back home to the Democrats. Now, yeah. personally, who do I think was the real winner in 92? It was Ross Perot. Oh, yeah. Question. If Ross Perot did not run, could George Bush have won? My answer to that question is probably yes. It would have been a narrow margin. It would have been a narrow margin, but it would have won. And if Ross Pro had won, you would not have had Newt Gingrich becoming Speaker. You would not have had the Republican Revolution in 94. You'd have had a Democratic Congress in with Bush presidency. And then you probably would have in 96 had Al Gore or George Mitchell or um, Paul Sungus. Or arguably, you would have, arguably, you could say you would never had Donald Trump either because he would have run on his own, Donald Trump. He wouldn't have run. He has a Republican. What? So never... Well, because if if was Perot won the actual election. Yeah. yeah. No, no, Bush, Bush, Bush. Oh, Bush. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Bush. If Bush won the election, you could, you could arguably say, uh, well, it doesn't matter about Donald Trump, then. but I think Bush. If well, he became... I understand that because if if we had Bush second term, you had Gore for eight years. For you go or some or get part for eight years. Which means you couldn't have had George W. Which means you couldn't have had the global financial crisis. Which means you couldn't have had the Obama presidency. Which means you couldn't have had Trump. Yes. Yeah. All right. I get that. That's fair. But I think I think George Bush. I think George Bush for a one-term president did extraordinary achievements. He's done more as a one-term president as many presidents did in two terms. Oh, I agree with that totally. I agree with I- that. He did more in one term than Barack Obama could ever do in two terms. Yes. Or three terms. Or three. Or three. <laughs> Because he was so fucking useless. 
But the but the whole point of um, not the whole point. I know it's a nice comedy. He did more in one term than what his son did in two terms. Yeah, absolutely. Right, that episode is over. That's an hour and fifty-seven minutes, and my computer's not overheated once. Thank God. Oh, that's good. Now, now your computer hasn't bursted up into a ball of flames. I think it's to turn my camera off, and also because I kept it shut last night. I kept it shut for twelve hours last night. Anyways, on Tuesday or Wednesday, Harry and I, James, you're welcome to come on if you want, if you wish to. I'm going to do so talking about the trade unions, talking about the strikes. Uh, anyone who's used to moderate centrist Dowd, you're going to get the exact opposite. You're going to get Marxist Dowd coming out because I'm a very strong defender of the unions and I can never ever criticise the trade unions. And Harry can criticise I, I can never criticise the trade unions. No, me and James, we, we are incapable of criticising the unions one bit. I'm a very big supporter of the unions. I believe everybody, if they want to have a job, should be required to join a trade union. I believe means very passionately. So we're debating the unions, talking about the unions. And on Saturday, we're gonna, I'm going to prep it on Friday. You can help me prep it, James, if you want to. And yeah. Saturday, we're going to then do Bill Clinton. Okay. All right. So... Wednesday we're going to do the unions Saturday we'll do uh, Bill Clinton Alright, till then listeners Goodbye